Hello, readers. Jeff Perlman is the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, host of the Two Writers Slinging Yang podcast, and a blogger at jeffperlman.com. His newest book is titled The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm so tired, it's not even funny. <laughs> I can imagine. I've seen you all over the place promoting a book that uh, I think is meets the standard that you've set over the years with your other nine books. And uh, obviously, Bo Jackson is a unique figure in sports history just for some of the seemingly heroic things that he did, even if his overall sports career may not have been quite as good as uh, we may remember it all these years later. But before we get to the professional side of things, let's talk a little bit about Bo the Kid. He grew up as the youngest of eight children in Bessemer, Alabama, raised by a single mom whose dad's presence was at best fleeting and at worst deadbeat. His birth name was Vincent Edward Jackson. So how do you end up with the name Bo? When he was a kid, he and a bunch of friends uh, went to a neighbor's farm and spent three days beating the crap out of a hog, an enormous hog with sticks day after day, hammering the hog. Cause you were, you know, the, there's a rural viciousness to it all. And um, he became known as boar hog from beating up a boar hog and then Bo. So originally he was actually called Borhog and then Bor and then Bo and Bo stuck. As a result of a dysfunctional home life and a debilitating stutter, Bo was actually an elementary school asshole. He was a bully, a vandal, and a thief. He may have even lost his virginity at the age of seven, which is all kinds of disturbing. What eventually convinced him to clean his act up? He was afraid of being sent to reform school. He had an older brother who went to reform school and his brother would come home and tell him stories about being raped at reform school. And whether those are true or not, they scared the crap out of little Vincent Jackson. And he was just like, I can't, I can't go to reform school and get raped. I can't go to reform school and get raped. And, you know, he goes to McAdoo High School and he discovers track and field first, baseball. He'd been playing baseball in the summer. He's really good. And football was a sport his mom didn't want him playing, Florence. Um, and he finally played when he entered high school. And everything just took, he was such a gifted athlete, just gifted beyond gifted that everything kind of took off. That's right. The Little League begins in 1973, first place football in ninth grade. But as you mentioned, his first athletic endeavor and the one that he excelled in the most early on was track and field. Who was Gail Pilkington and why is she important to Bo's youth story? First local newspaper writer to write about Bo Jackson. She heard about Bo Jackson, didn't know how to get in touch with him, knew who his mom was, stalked her at the supermarket and had and introduced her to her at the local supermarket. And she said, come on over, blah, 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 blah. She goes to Bo's house and he's just in the backyard showing off for her, doing pole vaults on his own, jumping, watch how far he can jump. Watch me jump over this fence. And she ended up writing this story when he was a sophomore in high school about this athletic phenomenon, Bo Jackson, who nobody, Vincent Jackson, who nobody knows about. And that really was the first, and I interviewed Gail, she was awesome. The first big publicity that he got. How good was Bo at football as a member of the Macadori Yellow Jackets? He was good, but it's kind of funny. I wrote a Brett Favre biography, and Brett Favre had a dad who coached him and just didn't have him throw the ball because they had a great running back. And Bo Jackson happened to play with a couple of other running backs who were really good. There were two other guys who wound up playing in college. He would get the ball, but he would get the ball 10 times a game, 11 times a game. He played defensive end and a little linebacker. He was a kicker. He was a great kicker. So it wasn't really until his junior year when he started getting more carries. In his senior year, he became a phenomenon in the state of Alabama. But he was never like the number one ranked running back in the state. He was never the exclusive ball carrier of McAdory. He just was a really, 
really, really freakish athlete who both schools were, you know, Alabama and Auburn were both interested in. So considering how good he was at football in the state of Alabama, obviously this becomes a bit of an Alabama-Auburn recruiting battle. But at the same time, he's really making a name for himself as a baseball player as well. As a matter of fact, he ends up getting selected in the second round of the MLB amateur draft in 1982 by the New York Yankees. Why did he ultimately decide to play football over pursuing pro baseball? And then why did he go with Auburn versus playing for the legendary Bear Bryant at Bama? It's really interesting. He was committed to playing, going to college, and his mom really wanted him to go to college. Now, Auburn was also running a lot of interference. Like, Auburn was putting up every barrier you could put up about this guy getting signed by a baseball team. Had people with his mom the whole time, had people shadowing him. It's a little creepy in hindsight, but that's what they did. He was also afraid of New York. The Yankees drafted him in the second round. He didn't know anything about New York. They offered to fly him and his coach to see Yankees Red Sox. He couldn't name a player on the Yankees. He didn't know the Yankees and the Red Sox were rivals. He knew nothing. He was a kid in the backyard playing sports. So he wasn't that interested. And um, he really wanted to go to college. And he didn't want to leave the state of Alabama. Like his first recruiting letter was Indiana. He got recruiting letters from USC and Colorado. And, you know, but the University of Alabama just didn't show the right interest in him. The coach was an aging Bear Bryant. It was suggested maybe he could play defense. He did not want to play defense. Ken Donahue, the assistant coach, rubbed him the wrong way when he said, if you go to Auburn, you guys will never beat us. And he went to Auburn. He knew Pat Dye would give him the chance to play right away, which he did. And uh, he, you know, he became a phenomenon super, super quickly. Yes, he did. An incredible first college game that left Pat Dye and the OC really scratching their heads and realizing that they need to play the guy more. And by the end of his freshman season, he's pretty well known throughout the SEC and nationally to a lesser degree. Obviously, there's not as much in the way of social media back in the early 1980s. So word doesn't spread as far as fast. But by the same token, they do finish the season as Auburn does every year by playing Alabama. How did Bo kind of kill Bear Bryant? Well, I wouldn't say he killed him because Bear Bryant died a few weeks later. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But, you know, it's the Iron Bowl. Uh, Alabama's won nine straight. Um, and Auburn gets the ball. They were while they marched down the field, they wind up at the one yard line. There's a play they used earlier in the game that was called simply Bo over the top, which in old school NFL, sort of seeing Walter Payton guys fly over the top is hand the ball off at the one yard line and have your guy jump higher than everyone else. Bo goes over the top, scores, they go ahead, everyone goes crazy. And it's kind of this play, like it's it's the most famous play in the history of that rivalry. It's Bo over the top. Thing that's forgotten is later in that game, they ran it again and Bo fumbled the ball. Alabama recovered. The Auburn defense held. But that's what happened. And then two years later, Bo cost him the iron ball in a play called Wrong Way Bo, where it was given and handed off to Brent Ford in the backfield. Bo ran the wrong way, left the blocking, uh, left defenders wide open for Brent Ford, and he got tackled. So there you go. And this is also another commonality throughout his sports career is that as physically gifted as Bo Jackson was and as much as he would drop jaws at times, he was also very rarely willing to put in the effort in terms of some of the off-season conditioning, in-season conditioning, then also learning the playbook too. He was gifted beyond gifted, beyond gifted. And I always worry that people are going to think it's some, you know, because back in the day, if you read these old media guides, every African-American athlete would be like naturally gifted, runs like a puma you know, whatever. And the white guy would always be the scrapper, dogged, hardworking. Coach's son. Think, yeah, coach's son, right? Coach's son studies the playbook. And I am always a little weary of that because it's it's a little bit, it's very unfair, but he was naturally gifted and he was a superior, superior athlete and he did not have to work as hard and he hated lifting weights and he did not like staying after practices and he did not like the burdens. He One of the beauties of playing baseball for him 
was he was able to skip his least favorite thing, which was off-season football workouts. He really became a workhorse when he after he hurt his hip with the White Sox and his fight back. I think he really learned how to sort of work your ass off. But um, he, yeah, he was he glided. There's no doubt he glided a little bit. Yeah, that was an interesting part of the story for sure. So you just mentioned baseball, and he did play baseball at Auburn. Once that freshman season ends in football, he eventually, I think he uh, does run track uh, for a little bit, but then he does make his way over to the baseball team. In his 1990 autobiography, Jeff, Bo Knows Bo, which you, me, and a lot of other kids read at the time, Bo talked about his struggles as a freshman on the Auburn baseball team. He said he struck out his first 21 times up, but that's not true. As you document in this book, in his first game, he starts things off with an infield single. He ends up two of five with two RBI in the game. So I guess my question is, if you have any clue as to why he's misremembering something like that in such a self-depreciating way. He definitely wasn't like lying. There's no benefit in trying to lie about that. So I would never accuse him of that because I don't believe it. Right. I honestly just think memory is fuzzy and he probably has his memory of really struggling. And he did look, he was bad. His next, he was one for his next 19 after that game. So he really did struggle. And it's funny because people like you interview people and they're like, Oh, he went over 21. Oh, he went over 21. Like, no, he actually didn't. You know, he didn't. I just think he forgot. Like there's, um, he did an interview the other day on Rich Eisen show. I was listening to it. Bo is great. Like he's great. He deserves all the praise he's getting. Rich asked him what his, favorite moment of his major league career was or his most memorable moment and he said um it was a game on so-and-so date 1990 you remember the day precisely and i got thrown out of the game on purpose because i wanted to be in the hospital for the birth of my daughter and i was like i don't know that doesn't sound totally right and the date he gave he said they were playing the brewers they weren't playing the brewers they were playing the red Sox, and he wasn't in the lineup he was hurt so mm. he didn't even play that day so it's not that he's lying but i think it really punctuates the necessity of research and of biography not just autobiography because i i did the look i looked at all the i got literally went to auburn went to their great sports information staff said can you guys get me as many box scores as possible from when he came along and i'm reading through the box scores and i was an 0 for 21 believer and i see his first game southern illinois two for five and i'm like whoa that's weird Near the end of his freshman baseball season, something happened between Bo and a teammate named Chris Sin. What was it and how this story concludes some 36 years later? Yeah, so it was a practice. Chris Sin was an outfielder. He was throwing pitches to Bo, and Bo hit a ball that cracked Chris Sin in the side of the head. Chris Sin went down, bleeding in the brain, you know, swelling, went to the hospital, and was never quite the same. Like, had a career and everything, but suffered seizures and struggles. And years passed, Bo never saw him again. That guy was a senior, Bo was a freshman. But Bo was on the sideline at an Auburn game visiting. And Chris's daughter, Catherine, was a, worked in like, you know, uh, as a booster with the, with the team, a supporter, whatever. And she's on the sideline. She's not supposed to approach people, but she approaches Bo Jackson. She says, I don't know if you remember my dad, but he's Chris Sen. And Bo's like, Chris Sen? Holy cow, I really hurt him. And she's like, I know. And how's he doing? And he tried calling him right there. And Chris Sen didn't want to talk. He was kind of embarrassed. A couple of years later, Bo is in the area where they live, Dotham, Alabama. And Bo calls him up and says, I want to come and visit you. And Bo drives to his house, drove two hours from where he was. They spent hours together. And Bo is just apologetic and he's crying. Bo, Bo said, I, I, I've always had carried this guilt that I ruined your hopes of a professional career. Hmm. Chris Sen was like, I never had any hopes, man. You don't have to worry about it. It was this really beautiful moment. One thing I like is Chris Sen owned a dog and the name of the dog was Bo Jack Sen. Hmm. That's a uh, very creative, nice pun there. Good job uh, by Chris Sen. 
So yeah, exactly. Definitely. So there are examples like this throughout this book, Jeff. And uh, I'll be honest, like I'm somebody who's a big Bo Jackson fan going back to the day, but I also have learned his reputation over the years as somebody who has worked in sports media for more than a couple of decades now. And he didn't always have the best reputation was the most surprising thing for you about writing this book is encountering stories like that about Bo's softer side and just seeing how much he did care about individuals, especially examples where an individual is going through some sort of serious struggle. I wouldn't say surprising. I would say um, I enjoyed it. Like it made me happy. Yeah. It, it makes me happy to see that side of a person. He's very gruff. He's very standoffish. He's very protective. He's extremely guarded. He does not trust easy. You know, there's a story where uh, his former Raider teammate, Greg Townsend, they were both working an autograph show and Greg Townsend goes up to ask him for autographs. And Bo's like, I have to charge you. And Greg Townsend's like, what are you talking about? He's like, man, I got to charge you. I charge everyone. He's kind of that guy. He's got that in him. But at the same time, just as a classic example, Uvaldi happens recently and he pays for a bunch of the funerals. He didn't put it out there, got out there, but He's that kind of guy too. He has a big heart. He does Bo Bikes Bama every year, the charity race ride that raises a ton of money for, for charities. He's just a good, he's a good guy with a very, very gruff exterior. As far as the folk hero side goes, what was Bo's the natural moment on the baseball diamond for Auburn playing against Georgia that actually happened a little bit more than a month before the Robert Redford film hit the movie theaters? Might be my favorite story in the book in a lot of ways because it speaks to everything about him. Georgia's first night baseball game ever it's a big deal. A lot of people are there, pep band, all that stuff. And they're hosting Auburn. Bo Jackson is getting it from the fans in right field. First at bat, grounds out. They just give it to him hardcore. Second at bat, comes up against Larry Lyons, Georgia pitcher. And he hits a ball that hits the light fixture, like actually smashes into the light fixture for a home run. Jogs back into the outfield. The fans are bowing at him. The same fans who are booing him are doing a bow. <laughs> two more next two at bats, hits home runs again. Last that bad doubles and they all boo him. <laughs> great, great. It's so mythical. I have so many people who are there though. Tommy Tomlinson, great, great writer, said to me, it's and he's covered sports for decades, said it's the farthest ball, the hardest ball he's ever seen hit. That is impressive. And yeah, you're right. It's uh, anybody who was around Bo Jackson actually knows somebody who was on those Texas teams that played Bo uh, his first couple years in school. And this guy was a kicker on those Texas teams. And he actually tackled Bo at one point. I guess Bo was returning kickoffs or something. And one, he's, that's like the story that he loves telling more than any other, getting to tackle Bo Jackson in a college game. But he says, my teammates and I all still agree that Bo Jackson is far and away most physically gifted individual we've ever watched perform. Like there's not even a close second for them. Not a, There can't be a close second. I don't even know. What would that even mean? Like, what would it look like? Okay, he's... Six foot one, 225 pounds. He runs a 413.40, right? He ran a 417.40 in pads. He's incredibly strong. He could bench press whatever he put up there, you know, anything he put up there. He's uh, coordinated enough to hit a Nolan Ryan fastball for a home run. And, you know, when Nolan Ryan is thrown 98, I don't even see the argument. I don't, I mean, serious about this. I don't see the argument against Bo Jackson as the greatest athlete of our lifetime. You didn't have the dirt, the longevity. That could be something. Show me someone better. I can maybe think of individuals who have certain skill sets that you just listed there, but not everything that comes together. Like Derrick Henry, 
is a very similar running back to Bo Jackson, that he has no problem running you over. And he has some 90-yard runs in his career. But can Derrick Henry, <laughs> like you just said, hit a Nolan Ryan 100-mile-per-hour fastball? Probably not. Also, he's not running a 4 one Derrick Henry. That's fair. It's uh, it's close, but he's definitely great. not in the 4 Derrick Henry's great. There's no doubt he's great. Now, again, take Derrick Henry, merge him with Manny Machado, and then we can talk. So uh, Bo wins the Heisman Trophy his senior season. This is well documented at this point. What was uh, maybe not quite as well known is that his life was a bit of a soap opera at this point. Why was that? Oh, boy. It's funny. You're the first person to ask me this because it's so like youthful. It feels so youthful. But he had a girlfriend, Allison, who he had dated and he proposed to. And then he had uh, his wife now who started dating Linda. And it was really weird because he took, okay, he took Allison to the Heisman Trophy ceremony and had her there at the ceremony. A couple weeks later, he went to Japan for the Japan Bowl, a college all-star game, took Linda. I think he introduced both of them as his fiance. He comes back from the Japan Bowl and is subject of an article in the Auburn newspaper, Bo's fiance win beneath his wings. And it's about Allison, the first one again. And he posed for a picture with Allison. So fiance, it's just like this weird analysis. Allison is like, well, I thought I was getting married to Bo Jackson. Then he meets Linda. He didn't know about Linda. When I told Allison, so I interviewed his girlfriend. She is, there's no hard feelings anymore. It's all kind of funny, but like, mm-hmm. she's like, I never knew he went to Japan. Like, I didn't know he went to Japan. I certainly didn't know he took her to Japan, but it's college. You know, honestly, God, like he's been a great husband for the last X number of years. He's a great dad. He's a grandfather. Like, it's not like Brett Favre and the scandals right. of Favre. It's like youthful, dumb stuff. And he does end up with Linda when it's all said and done, too, for those wondering just how much of a dog Bo Jackson was. And he admitted he was a dog. Like, he wrote about and talked about being a dog, and I had to get it out of my system, and he did. Why did Bo's senior season with the Auburn baseball team end so abruptly? Well, it depends who you blame, but the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers were going to draft him. They had the number one pick in the overall draft. They wanted him to come to Tampa for a physical. The Buccaneers send their team plane, or they send the owner's plane, you call Ross's plane, Take Bo back up in Auburn, fly him to Tampa. They're playing a game that night, Auburn baseball against Alabama, Birmingham. He's not there. The head coach asked him, well, where's Bo? Uh, I think he flew to Tampa to get a physical with the Buccaneers. And Hal Barrett, the coach says, what? He says, yeah, he flew to Tampa, I think. At the time, in most conferences in America, you could be professional in one sport, amateur in another. The SEC did not allow that. That killed his, his eligibility to play the remainder of his baseball season. Now, there are two people to blame. Potentially the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the owner, you call house who Bo believed took advantage of the situation, flew him out, cost him his baseball eligibility. Bo also had an agent, Freeland Abbott, who Bo blamed for arranging it all. I've never understood what would be the motivation of the Buccaneers to piss Bo Jackson off. Like, so he could miss 20 games of baseball. It doesn't make any sense. I honestly think it was miscommunication more than anything, um, but he was really mad about it. And after the Buccaneers drafted him, he did his due diligence and he flew out. And Steve Young, who was the quarterback of the Bucs at that point, told me a great story where Hugh Culverhouse, the owner, took Steve Young and Bo Jackson out for dinner. And he wanted Steve Young to pitch Bo on the Buccaneers. And Culverhouse gets up to leave the table and Bo Jackson leans in and says, there's no way I'm ever signing with this team. Hmm. Steve Young was like, okay, guess my job is done here. And then he went on a fishing trip like a day later and the guys on the boat were like, you do not want to be a part of this franchise. Current Bucs players. Yeah, oh yeah, you don't want to be here. We'd love to have you. You're great but we're okay Thanks, stay, away from, stay away from this shit show so uh bo ends up uh denying football 
ends up getting selected by the Kansas City Royals in the 1986 MLB draft. I think it was in the fourth round. He agrees to sign with the team and takes a promotional trip to Kansas City to see the stadium, meet with some of his future teammates and more. But how did he leave a pretty bad taste in the malice of his future Royals teammates, including George Brett and Willie Wilson? So what he does is he uh, he has all these photos of him, these glossy photos of him with the Heisman Trophy. And he starts handing them out in the clubhouse, putting them on. He literally is going locker to locker, leaving them on stores for people. If you do that at a high school, you'll be a hero. If you do that in a major league locker room, you will not be a hero. And oh. people start, Hal McRae, the veteran DH, is following him around, literally taking the photos and throwing them in the air. People are ripping them up. It went over so poorly, just tone deaf, tone deaf, tone deaf. Like, buddy, you're not, we're not that impressed. We're all, we've all been athletes. We all get it. Not impressed. So the way Bo had worked his contract, Kansas City had to call him up to the big league club in September. They do. It's a pretty pedestrian year for a guy who is still very raw as a baseball player. But all throughout this time in baseball, he keeps getting asked about football. And he insists, I'm not going back to football. I'm done with football. But that turns out to be a lie. Through a former teammate, Bo gets word to Raiders owner Al Davis that he would be, in fact, be interested in returning to football. The Raiders then select Bo Jackson in the seventh round of the 1987 draft. How do the Royals take the news that Bo would, in fact, be returning to the gridiron? Very angrily. His teammates were furious, like pissed off furious, like really wanted to punch him in the face furious. And the Royals were pissed. The Royals felt like we made an investment. You're a baseball player. You said you were going to be a baseball player. And he's like, no. And and the thing is, they were just terrified this guy was going to get hurt. They're like, you're a marquee player. You're going to get hurt. And they're worried he'd be distracted. And God, I love Bo Jackson. I'm as big a fan as he could be. He did get hurt. Like, he kind of proved them right. Like, they were right. I mean, he doesn't regret it, but they weren't wrong. He ruined what could have been a 15-year major league career. Now, again, I don't think he has a single regret about it. He did it the way he wanted to do it. But if you're the Royals... It's hard to be like, hey, and when they, you know, when they released him after that Monday night game in 91, when he hurt his hip, he was pissed. Like he was pissed, pissed. He felt that they were disloyal. And basically their approach was, buddy, we told you not to do this. We told you and told you and told you and told your agents, don't do this. You did it. You got hurt. We are not paying you $2 million to walk around on crutches. We're just not. Yeah, it's harsh, but it's also the business at times. Uh, so once he's done with that first Royal season, he uh, ends up joining the Raiders in Los Angeles, which is where they were at the time. How'd Bo's first day of practice go for then Raider Matt Millen? First, I want to say I love that you read the book. Thank I you. really mean that. A lot of people don't. You did. I appreciate it. Matt Millen thought Bo Jackson was a replacement player because this was the year where they used scabs for a while. So they're running drills and Matt Millen and uh, Jerry Robinson and Rod Martin are beating the crap out of the other team. And one running back after another running back. And then Bo Jackson takes a handoff and Millen run, lunges for him. He's just, whoo! Millen comes back to huddle. Man, I'm rusty. Next play. Whoo! What the hell is wrong with me? And like Rod Martin is cracking up. And he's like, <laughs> what? It's so funny. He's like, buddy, that's not a scab. That's Bo Jackson. And Matt Millen's like, oh, thank God. Thank God. And that was his intro to Bo, to Bo Jackson. So I realized that I'm going to ask this next question from a very biased chair in Austin, okay. Texas, as a lifetime Texas Longhorns fan. But how big a favor did Bo do humanity when he killed the Boz during Monday Night Football on November 30th, 1987? I actually think in a way he did Brian Bosworth a favor, a favor because Brian Bosworth was insufferable and out of control. And he just, you know, you'll see him now. And he seems like, I know you're Texas. He seems like a legitimately good guy and like repentant guy. Don't you think? 
all seriousness, he lives in Austin now, and I've heard great stories from people who interact with him. Yeah, he seems lovely. So I think in a way, he just got caught up in all the crap he did, the buzz and being this caricature. And that was the beginning. You know, Steve Berline, the Raiders quarterback, told me like he that night Bo killed the body, killed the buzz, and he buried the body. He was a steroid-adled, overrated, overhyped. He's kind of like the Alf Don Emmanuel Lewis from the 80s. Like he was there, he was kind of interesting, but maybe we were better served without it. Did you speak with him for the book? No, he didn't return any of my freaking calls. I talked to so many of his Seahawks teammates and to a man, they don't hate him now, but they just found him beyond annoying, just annoying. And like, I think some of those guys, when he got run over by Boz, to be honest with you, by Bo, were pretty happy about it. <laughs> so Game Bo was out of hand. Raiders are winning big. Yeah. Let's, nice to see this guy, you know, embarrassed. He, he needs to be knocked down a peg completely embarrassed and uh, he was not the same player after that either so Bo finishes that football season ends up uh, returning to royal spring training in 1988 how was he acting like a complete ass when he returned to baseball well first of all he was just pissed off at his teammates like he felt like these guys threw him under the bus he was really mad at willie wilson really mad at frank white wasn't getting along with people had an ego had an attitude probably got caught up a little bit in the bow thing you know he was young and like he wasn't always likable the thing you would do that would drive his teammates crazy is he was set up an archery set up in the locker room and you would go in the baseball clubhouse and he'd have a archery uh, board on one end and he'd shoot arrows across the clubhouse and all the players were afraid to approach him because he was intimidating so no one would have the guts to say bo you got to take that down the other thing is he wouldn't sign autographs on anything football related so you'd have baseball teammates coming up to Bo and being like, hey, Bo, can you sign this Raiders jersey? Nah, man, not going to do it. There was kind of an unwritten code in a baseball clubhouse. Like you sign autographs for teammates, they sign autographs for you. So um, he could be an ass. There's no doubt about it. He could be an ass. And this is one of my favorite stories that I'm about to ask about. But what was the Kevin Seitzer incident? Ah, it's one of my favorite too. Kevin Seitzer, Royals. You remember Kevin Seitzer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good player. Like legit. <laughs> He wasn't like Boggs or Gwynn, but he was that next tier of like a 305 hitting third baseman. I feel like he made an all-star team or two. I think he did, but he was a pain in the ass. And he was like one of those teammates who like is always chirping, 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 chirping. And one day, um, Bo and him, Bo, they, they're in the same hitting group under the stadium with Ed Hearn and Bill Pakoda. Bo has to leave the line real quick to get pants from the locker room. He comes back and uh, Seitzer's in the cage and Bo's like, hey, it's my turn. And Seitz was basically like, tough shit, you missed it. And they go back and forth, yapping a little. Seitz was giving him crap, as he always does. Bo pins him against a wall, raises him by his neck, and is like, if you mess with me again, I swear, blah, 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 blah. Teammates are trying, coaches are trying to rip his arm off and just becomes more and more vice-like. Kevin Seitz is turning blue. And finally, Bo puts him down. But he could have killed Kevin Seitzer. And afterwards, Seitzer goes up to him and he's like, hey, man, are we good? And Bo was like, we're not good. You cannot do that to me. <laughs> he was intense, man. He was not a guy who you were just like, hey, Bo. You know, a couple guys did, like George Brett could or Howie Long could. But generally, no. He wasn't playing. He was not playing. I'm tempted to ask about the throw, but it's a great story, and it takes up uh, several pages. So I'm just going to encourage people to buy the book for plenty of reasons, but that story in particular. The Bo Knows campaign that Nike put out, and I think it was 1989, is one of the most recognizable campaigns in advertising history. How did that campaign come to be, and why did it turn out to be incredibly poetic upon its first airing? 
Well, it's really interesting if you think about it. You know, he was there with Jordan. Like they were the two marquee marketers at the time together. And one of them, Jordan, was very well-spoken, kind of joyful, and at the time had this real radiance. And the other guy wasn't. He was a guy with a stutter who didn't say very much. But they built this campaign around the simple idea of Bo knows, Bo knows, Bo knows. And the famous commercial is the Bo knows Diddley. Bo, you don't know Diddley commercial with, you know, Wayne Gretzky and Jordan and McEnroe and all those guys. They put all this money into this campaign. And it ends with Bo Diddley saying, Bo, you don't know Diddley. Uh, they put all this money in the campaign and they're going to premiere it during the 1989 Major League All-Star Game, which Bo Jackson is leading off. And they're really nervous about it. And all of the Nike executives are at Mickey Meadows restaurant in New York watching the game. Ad's going to air in the fourth inning. Bo leads off the first inning. It's Ronald Reagan and Vince Scully in the booth. It's kind of cool. Rick Rush on the mound, 40-year-old starter. But second pitch, Bo hits a homer. Like beautiful to center field, scores the sky, everything onto the batter's eyes. All these fans come running out. A guy, a BYU student gets the ball, raises it in the air. Jackson's circling the bases, but more significantly in New York at Mickey's Mantle's restaurant, these people are going crazy. All these Nike executives are like, yes, yes. It was the best timing for an ad I think you'll ever find in your life. And it really changed the course of, I think, Nike. I really do. I think that moment. And the cross, certainly the cross trainer, because it's an ugly shoe. And not that many people are seeking a cross trainer, but that did it, man. It's a big moment. That's interesting. It probably did put the cross trainer on the map. And that's still a shoe that's uh, common nowadays. I mean, that's a shoe that every shoe company has a version of now. Yeah, it's an ugly shoe. It was an ugly shoe then. They originally had Howie Long and a woman triathlete whose name I, I escapes me mm. as the endorsers. And it didn't do anything. But the idea of like this guy, Bo Jackson, you know, an actual cross trainer, it just took it to the next level. What did you learn about the time that Bo went the matrix and literally ran up and down an outfield wall on July 11th, 1990, when the Royals were facing the Orioles? Amazing. First of all, according to uh, his teammates in Memphis, he'd done it once in a minor league game, but there's no recording of it. It was in Charlotte in an empty stadium uh, between the Charlotte Orioles and the Memphis Chicks. He's up in Kansas City. He's playing in the outfield. Willie Wilson is next to him. Willie Wilson swears he saw him do it in a batting practice once too. And Willie Wilson used to tell people, I'm telling you, Bo Jackson is going to do it. Joe Orslack is at the plate, Orioles outfielder. Hits a shot. Bo runs. He can't stop. He's going too fast. He plants. He runs up the wall. It's right in front of the Orioles bullpen. The Orioles bullpen's on the other side of the wall. And the members of the Orioles bullpen pull back because they think he's coming over the wall, which is crazy. I interviewed Joe Orslack. He told me he didn't know until about 10 years after the play that he was the one who hit that ball because he tended to look up, uh, look at the first base coach when he hit a ball and he was looking at him to see what would happen. And he didn't know until later. He was he just thought by the time he looks up, Bo Jackson has the ball and he's running back. And it is one of those seminal moments for him that is uniquely Bo. It's just like that outfield throw. Like there may be other examples of that that have happened in Major League Baseball history. The one we all think about is Bo gunning it in from left field and getting Harold Reynolds out at home. It's just one of those things. It's like the Bosworth play. It's just one of those things that there's there's nobody else who has a highlight that comes close to that. He's very interesting. He's really a man of moments, if you think about it. I did on Twitter in the lead up to the book, my 10 favorite Bo Jackson moments. And it's just not that hard to come up with them. You know, number one is him running up the wall because no one's done it. Number two is his 91-yard run on Monday Night Football, which is just outstanding. 
Number three is the throw to get Howard Reynolds. And number four is the all-star game home run. But I can give you a million bow over the top at Auburn. You know, like there's a million bow running over Mike Harden in the Denver secondary. There's a million moments. He is a specific moment-to-moment athlete. So Bo suffers his infamous hip injury during a Raiders playoff game against the Bengals on January 13th, 1991. Amazingly, he didn't even end up getting the hip seriously looked at until five weeks later. What exactly was the injury that he suffered and why was it so serious? All right. I know you're going to, I knew it's avuncular necrosis is the name. I think I always screw this up. A vascular, a vascular, a vascular necrosis. There we go. A vascular. Thank you very much. Sure. I knew this was coming. And I meant to read the book. I mean, I wrote the book, but it's been a while. <laughs> Not my strength, medical terms. And basically, it was a diseased hip. The hip is actually dying. It starts to die. And when he went to get it looked at the first time, the doctor points to the scan and says, see all that black? Yeah, that's blood, pooling blood. And he's like, he got sick to his stomach. So the hip, he had a diseased hip. And the Royals released him. He was done playing football. The White Sox took a chance on him, knowing it's a long stop and not spending very much. He's like, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And then next year, he actually came back at the end. He came back at the end of 91. He played a little bit with the White Sox on a diseased hip, but it wasn't good enough. Came back to spring training 92, was hobbling around, had a hip replacement surgery, and um, came back to be a very mediocre DH. But that's not an insult because being a mediocre DH on a 1990s era artificial plastic and metal hip is one of the great achievements in modern sports. I mean, considering that he came back and was taking major league at bats, left yep. less than a year after he suffered that hip injury, where does that rank for you amongst the, his most impressive uh, impressive physical feats, Jeff? Number one. Actually, number one. It is yeah. so preposterous, so ridiculous. And also, like, everyone was always like, he's so natural. He's naturally gifted, naturally gifted. And he was. And here's this moment where he had to bust ass. And he did. And he came back and he learned what it was. He learned what it was to be a scrub, to be a fifth outfielder, to be a backup infielder, to have to bust your ass and do it. To me, it's just amazing. And it doesn't get the, we all talk about him running up the wall and running over the bars. A guy playing major league baseball with an artificial hip is preposterous. I was so happy when I happened upon your uh, your portion of the book that covers the legend of Tecmo Bowl. Of course, on the original Tecmo Bowl football video game, Bo Jackson and Lawrence Taylor were far and away the two most dominant players in that game. So how'd Bo get even more dominant for Super Tecmo Bowl, which was technically released after he had retired from football? Yeah, I know. It's so weird. The guys who were doing the game were in Japan. They were Japanese developers. Their access to football was limited. They'd get every now and then a videotape of a game, and they had a, a magazine, one magazine that came out in Japan. But they saw Bo Jackson, and like, again, you see him running over people, and you think this guy's preposterous and ridiculous. It's funny. They gave him a 75 as speed. Jerry Rice was the next fastest, which is funny because he actually wasn't a super fast receiver yeah. at 67. So anytime Bo Jackson gets away from anyone, you actually can't catch him. It's impossible to catch him because he's so much faster on this scale than anyone else. But it's one of those things when I started this book, everyone's like, you're going to talk about Tecmo, right? Tecmo, Tecmo. And um, <laughs> I was like, I guess I'm going to write about Tecmo. And I did. Today where I was on Good Morning Football, I actually have a shirt. It's, te- it's a Tecmo Bo t-shirt and I wore it because uh, people love that stuff. Oh, I love it. So uh, you say that, uh, or you mentioned that Bo sits out the 1992 season, comes back in 1993. He actually has a decent year in 1993 for the White Sox. But why was 1993 Bo's most enriching year as a sports star? I think because he learned to sort of value his health and love what it meant to be a player. And he would look around and realize this is kind of a treat. 
This isn't just given. I just think he came to really appreciate it in a way he hadn't before. He loved his teammates. He loved Chicago. He loved the intensity of the city. He loved the sports market. And the next year, you know, he signed with the California Angels. I live near the Angels. Like, it's it's mush. It's like, okay, but it's like no one's that into it. And he was like, this, is, this isn't this is my thing. And when when the strike came and he left, he, he knew he was done. How did Bo's legend grow in 1993, no pun intended here, while playing ping pong with teammate Rick uh, Rona one afternoon before a game? I don't know if I'd say his legend grew, but his penis was erect and he was playing ping pong, returning. So it is funny. Like you talk to that era of ballplayers is kind of funny and gross and whatever. And like Steve Sachs was the second baseman for the White Sox and he had just come over from the Yankees. He calls over the writers and he's like, guys, guys, Bo Jackson's penis is like the arm of a young black boy holding a plum. <laughs> and later he said, it's like a hog's heart on a post. I think those are the two best descriptives of penises ever. But he literally played ping pong with it. I think he said he hit the ball twice. Yeah, he played ping pong with it. He also one time signed a baseball resting, hit the ball against his penis. Again, look, it's not the end of too many details. I'm a, I'm a Jewish man. I could never do that. Impossible. <laughs> Oh, man. What was Bo's role in the infamous uh, Nolan Ryan, Robin Ventura brawl, both before and during the fight itself? Well, those two teams are at each other all the time. And he told Ventura, look out, look out, look out. He said, if you charge the mound, don't stop at the pitcher, run straight through him like you're going to second base. So you charge, you take Nolan Ryan with you, you tackle him. Robin Ventura did not listen to this advice. He took off his helmet. He goes, don't take off your helmet. He took off his helmet, threw it down. Charged Nolan Ryan, kind of stopped. Obviously, Roland puts in the headlock. Then Nolan Ryan's on the bottom of the pile below everyone, and he's suffocating, and he feels these arms come in and lift him out, and it's Bo Jackson. And that night, Bo Jackson gets a message at the hotel, and it's, hey, Bo, it's Nolan. I just want to thank you for saving my life. That's really cool. You quoted former Raiders kicker Chris Barr, who was a teammate of Bo's, as saying, quote, sometimes it seemed he just did enough to let people know how good he was. Do you agree with that, and why or why not? Yeah, I think sometimes. I think he could have been a harder worker. I mean, and that's not, I guess it's not a compliment. I don't think it's so horrible, but yeah, he could have worked harder. He wrote on his athleticism. It would have been interesting to see a healthy Bo reach 30, 31, 32, and see if he would have started lifting weights, if he would have started to eat a little healthier, if he would have been in the pool. Because a lot of great athletes, you know, Deion Sanders, great example, have to adjust to time. But he was not a particularly hard worker or hard study. He was just so beyond gifted that he didn't have to be. Final question, Jeff. You spoke with Bo by phone in May of 2020 in the middle of this project to see if he'd be willing to take part. He declined, which isn't a surprise, but you guys did get to chat for a while. How cool for you, by the way. Near the end of the call, Bo told you, everyone wants to do a Bo book, but nobody realizes how hard that would be. So what was the hardest part of, about writing this book for you? It's his personality. It's much harder to write about a sort of reluctant, quiet, off-putting, could be harsh, guarded kind of athlete, as opposed to writing about a Walter Payton or Brett Favre where they're out there in the gregarious. So it was a challenge cracking out because a lot of people who knew him fairly well to very well, it's not like they were bosom buddies with him. So mm -hmm. that was a little tough, but it's still, I like the mystery of it. He was a joy. He was, you know, he's a joy to write about. He is Jeff Perlman. The new book is an excellent one. The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jeff, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.